I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. is the music of the pop group, which features my guest today on the program, Mark Stewart. Let me tell you a little bit about the pop group and Mark Stewart. All right, so let's start with a question. What does it mean to be an individual? Well, that's not terribly hard to answer, right? Being an individual means that you recognize your creative, intellectual, and emotional characteristics are different than everyone else's, and you live your life honoring the styles, flourishes, and innovations that make you entirely unique to everyone else. Okay, that part was easy. The next question, well, it's a little trickier. It shouldn't be, but it is. Why is it so hard to be an individual? Well, being an individual is hard because when you are one, you risk not being popular, or one of the crowd, or widely accepted. It means that when everyone else goes left, you go right and you don't care. You never regret not making that left. It means you go against the grain and honor your own personal code. Whether that's how you dress, how you behave, the music you listen to, the places you hang out, the people you hang out with, the way you think, the books you read, the countries you want to go to, the words you use, the paintings you paint, the songs you write, the poetry you compose, and the people that you love. And it's hard because, by contrast, it's so much easier to go where the flow is going, to fall into that uniform fluidity of the everyday patterns of everyone else. Now, the best visual depiction I can think of about being an individual is probably based on a misinterpretation, but it comes in the video for Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. At the end of the clip, a guy in a suit who, to be totally fair, has been through some stuff, is walking with the flow of foot traffic down a busy street. Suddenly, something occurs to him, and he turns around, and instead of walking with the tide of humanity, he begins to walk directly into it. In other words, he realizes the right way is the wrong way, and the wrong way is the right way, and everyone else be damned because the right way is where he's headed, 
no matter how wrong it looks. Well, in many ways, that moment in that video might very well sum up the career of Mark Stewart and the pop group. The Bristol outfit were originally conceived of as a funk band, but as you just heard, things certainly didn't end up that way. Inspired by punk rock, politics, avant-garde music and literature, free jazz, dub, and reggae, the pop group are one of the most vital and seminal post-punk bands of all time. Their nervy blend of jittery rhythms, grinding melodies, percussive stomp, and howling vocals remain all these years later, sonically daring, artistically bold, and decidedly irresistible. I love this band, and even after thousands of listens, I still can't get my head around why it all works so well. It just does, and new textures keep revealing themselves. The music keeps unspooling artful layers that I never even realized were there. For the pop group, it was a short but brilliant career. They were on the cover of the NME. They did a high-profile tour that found them donating the proceeds to Amnesty International. They put out two critically acclaimed albums, and then that was that. Born in 77 and defunct by 81. But they reformed years later and put out two more fabulous albums in 2015 and 2016, and now they're back again. I'll let Mark tell you all about the renewed interest in the band and so much more. Now, this conversation is literally all over the place, but trust me, even though you think at times it's never going to come back and have a linear narrative, it does. It all makes sense in the end. So let's get to it. Here's my chat with Mark Stewart of the Pop Group, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. with but um well, we were there fairly recently we did a we did a tour for this we reformed and made this album called citizen zombie and we played some cool kind of old ballroom had you been here in the old days did the pop group play here in the late no 70s, the late no we only played we only played new york and philly ah and, and in philly we played a place called i believe it was a starlight ballroom where they filmed um Alan Freed's rock and roll shows, and a, a girl came backstage and said, um, hi, I'm Lydia Laser. I'm Jim Dandy from Black Oak, Arkansas's girlfriend, and I dance with every band that comes into town. <laughs> and she had these kind of Vegas things stuck to her nipples. <laughs> I mean, I'm still serious, but I was a very serious young man just thinking about starvation and the... <laughs> And this bird starts stripping. <laughs> so, so next time, if it all goes well, there's a job there for you, mate. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, so no memories of San Francisco because the pop group never played here. But I remember the I Beam. I used to love the I Beam. A bit later on, I played there with the Mafia. Wicked venue. Beatniks played with us, who were absolutely fantastic. Oh yeah, I remember the beat. Sure, sure. Um, you guys would have been great in San Francisco in like 81. That would have been really cool. Why didn't that happen? Why did you guys only play two two dates in the US? I've got no idea. I've got no, well, no we we were in New York for quite a long time. We were playing like the Mud Club, Hur uh, um Hurrahs, Tier 3, um 
the lad from Sonic Youth did a, I did a I did a double double header with him, and he was saying that he Thurston came and saw us playing at this place called Tier Three with Arto Lindsay, and uh, Gareth the saxophonist was rolling around in broken glass and. Thurston said, oh, I want a bit of this. You know, once we got to New York and, and we started hearing that a lot, you know, obviously we knew television and we toured with Patti Smith in Europe, but of anything, we felt closer to the New York No Wave bands like Mars and that, although it was a bit later on, you know, DNA, Theoretical Girls. It was cool shit, you know. It was a far cry from what was happening in Bristol, right? Well, the, the funny thing is that um, people isolate Bristol. And, you know, it happens with my friends, Massive Attack, these days. They say, you know, how, does, how did Bristol conjure up such, such mad music? But we all travel, and it's a huge port, you know, and it's like, it's like how, how rock and roll came into Liverpool and Hamburg with the American sailors, you know. People, you know, lots of my friends' family had left Jamaica and come to Bristol, and some had gone to New York, and we were always traveling. And I was, I was knocking off school and hanging out in London and sleeping in the bus stations and going to gigs and stuff. We were going over to Wales to see the Sex Pistols and, and nightclubbing. We were always moving around. So it wasn't really an isolated town. And there were, the, there were amazing record shops there. You know, knocking off school, I'd hang around this record shop called Revolver and get into like Albert Ayler and Sun Ra, who I met later, a couple of years later. You know, it's just like, you can educate yourself. And on the way home from school, we, we, we were all really into City Lights. You know, there's a writer called Michael McClure on, on, on City Lights, which was just mind-blowing. Of course. You know, Falangetti's still alive. It's incredible. Yeah, he is. He's almost 100, or maybe he just turned 100. Is he still in Frisco? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wicked. What put Bristol on the map for me, This will. I'm 49, so the Blue Airplanes was when I first became conscious of Bristol. I was down in Bristol last week doing a doing a sort of under we got these Y underground sort of experimental sort of beatnik salons just to just to you know do some little anniversary things. We did some at the Rough Trade down there, and I was I went to my local pub and uh, my friend John Stapleton, who's an amazing African DJ now, he was like the DJ with the aeroplanes. Yeah, yeah, they're cool. You know, it seems to me that you've never cared about fitting in. You and you've all, and it seems like you knew that mark pretty early on. I, I, I realized that at primary school. The problem is when you're a foot taller than everybody else from an early age. I was taller than everybody else in the school at the age of six. So for me to kind of fit in and wear normal clothes and kind of, I have to kind of crouch down to talk to people. Do you know what I mean? And being tall, you become a sort of flag post for people to throw things at. <laughs> but my, my whole family's fucking weird. <laughs> you know, I'm the I'm the I'm the sanest of my family. They're out, they're off the chain. You know, my uncle Reg is like Bart Simpson. You know, we're half gypsy, half it's 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 a crazy mix. And 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 there are some there's something weird in the water in Bristol. There's some real characters down there. It's a, it's a little bit countryside. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't like you didn't you didn't sort of become an individual as a reaction to a conventional home life. Not at all. And I'm not sure who did. I think, I think that whole appraisal of people rebelling against a nuclear family and this idea of baby boomers and whatever, talking to friends of mine, everybody I know had kind of what they now call patchwork families or were in very strange situations or were raised by wolves in Tricky's case. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, but we're cool people. And the funniest thing is I, I find at the moment that some of my most untogether friends 
have had the most incredible children. Because, you know, it's like, I don't know, I, you know, I'm not one for making truisms or something, but you can I don't know, you can't, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not sure whether it's nurture or nature or whatever, but my dad, who recently died, was completely out there. He spent half his life kind of dowsing, talking to what he calls the information field. <laughs> my grandmother was like, every Sunday we'd do these weird kind of clairvoyance things with table wrapping. My mum did dowsing, for, you, you know, the... And on, on the other side of the family, it's just like, it's just, it's, it's a weird collection of people, but they seem to, you know, we all seem to get on. And Bristol is, the interesting thing about Bristol is it's small enough that people have to, the only place it reminds me of, I hung around in Geneva in the punk days, and there was only like one late night club, and you'd get like the Crown Prince of Kuwait or some Prince of Kuwait, you'd get, you know, a junkie, it, it would, because there was nowhere else to go, you'd, Every, the, you know, in Bristol, we don't see gender, we don't really see class, and we definitely don't see race. Because it's, it's not big enough to have kind of ghettos, if, if you understand what I'm saying. Growing up, a late night drink would be in the Jamaican blues, in, in the Jamaican blues dances, you know. And my mum moved in from the countryside into, into the cheapest area of Bristol. And then when the Jamaicans arrived, you know, we, we were recruiting for a lot of labor after the Second World War in the 1950s and 60s, when the Jamaicans arrived, my grandfather thought they were gentlemen because they had nice suit suits and they bothered to polish their shoes, which some of the local navvies didn't. You know, bizarre. You, you hear that some of the other towns, Birmingham, and I'm up in London at the moment, the, at the moment, like the Somalian people live in one area. And when I was living in Berlin, there was a whole sort of Turkish area. In Bristol, especially in our generation, through football and then fashion and the funk clubs we went to. And then punk was totally and utterly a mixture. You know, like I'm saying, my, my mate who I was with the other night, who was the DJ in the Wild Bunch before Massive Attack, you know, he had like a green Mohican and he'd come to the pop group gigs. You know, a black lad with a, you know, it's the stereotypes you see portrayed are not true. And the funniest thing about post-punk, because the NME was kind of black and white and we were into sort of expressionist photos and we were trying to be arty, you know, just to go against the grain and, and kick back against the pricks, as Nick Cave says. People look at it as quite a dark period, you know, and the photographers would say, come over to our old bomb site or something, you know. But I remember Ian Curtis leaning over and tapping me on the shoulder and making funny jokes. Do you know what I mean? But it doesn't right. play into this serious young men, John Oz, angry young men stereotype which is fair enough, but for me, I don't often look back, but for me, that period of what they call post-punk, which, again, I don't want to be put in a box until I'm dead, but that period was so joyful because punk opened up so many doors, and we would never have thought of being musicians. We were going straight to the arms factory outside town. You know? The bass player was already working on a sort of engineering line. Simon, you know? We were we were at school, going on tour with Peruba at school, Peruba at school, coming down, failing exams. Pe um, Patty Smith took us out under her wings, took us on tour, and then we just, you know, it was a way of escaping to a certain extent from. There was a place called the Shadow Factory outside Bristol. It's like a J.T. Ballard book, but it, there was a, a, a bomber called the Shadow Bomber or something in the 1950s. You know, it was it was all aerospace and engineering and and. All around Bristol, there was like little cigarette factories, you know. That I'm not knocking normal jobs, but thank God, you know. Thank so, God for Johnny Rotten. Right, I was going to say, was it the Sex Pistols that blew it open? Yes.
And it was McLaren, really. It was McLaren's kind of situationist concepts and his kind of weird, his, his kind of McLuhan kind of media, knowing how to run with a mistake, which, which we've kind of learned to a certain extent. When something went wrong on the telly, he played, it to their, he played it to their advantage instead of just like backing down, you know, and be able to spin on a penny and juxtaposition. Yeah, McLaren, Bernie Rhodes, who I got to know a little bit, they were, they were hanging around in, in Paris in 1968 in the in student uprising, and they were very, they were reading cutting-edge shit, you know, and they were putting those kind of da-da situationist things kind of into, into British street politics through, through youth cults. But it wasn't a huge jump for you because it sounds like you were already getting a sense of who you were. You were already probably more than halfway there by the time the Sex Pistols hit, just in terms of your own aesthetic, right? That is the strangest thing. You know, a few, like a year later, we'd go up to Manchester. We were in Manchester more than we were in, 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 in uh, we played in Manchester more than anything. Tony Wilson, before he started Factory, was taking us under his wing and he was putting running clubs and stuff. And, and meetings, a lot of the guys, you know, I was just with Eric Random and the, the people who formed the Man, uh, Mancunian scene, like Rob Gretton, the New Order manager, and anyway, loads of different people. And then later on, hanging out with different musicians over the years, you realize that in every small town, every town in Bristol, independently, there were a few kids in each school who were getting into the New York Dolls. I mean, we were getting into Joe Bryas. You know, the, the, door, the doorway was often like Roxy Music or Bowie. I mean, glam was more outrageous than punk to a certain extent. People were like wearing women's clothing and kimono and makeup to school at the age of 12 or 13, you know totally more outrageous so and people were picking up stuff and but it, it wouldn't have kicked off if there hadn't have been a figurehead because we were kind of getting into pub rock like dr feelgood and eddie and the hot rods because of the energy and the count bishops and stuff but only when we saw a tiny little picture of the pistols in this music mag magazine called sounds and they were wearing the same sort of mohair jumpers and pink pink bowie pegs that we were wearing to funk clubs did we think, oh, there's a band that looks a little bit like us? Because it was music was sort of separate. You know, we were kind of club kids to us. You know, not like Michael A. a League, wherever we were, but that's where we were. That's where we found our home in these like heavy kind of mixed race kind of funk and reggae clubs. You know. Yeah, and I would imagine that it seems to me that public image would have more to do with your aesthetic than than the than the Pistols themselves. So did you respond to PIL? Well, the funny thing is, just now, I've just done a track with Jar Wobble and Keith Levine and Richard Dodansky, and I was just working on the video of it just now. We've got a track coming out together. And Keith Levine, like, a, you know, a little bit later, I just started, some, started chatting to some guy outside the Marquee Club in Soho about UFOs. And, I, you know, a bit later, somebody said, oh, that's Keith Levine, right? And Keith... For me, I mean, he's he's just like Beavis. He's like Beavis from Beavis and Butthead. He's, he's human and everything. But he started The Clash. Public Image was a lot of his ideas. But I wasn't really listening to a lot of English music at that time. We were into like Manu de Bango, George Clinton, Don Cherry, obviously, Coltrane, Albert Ayler. And I was heavily, heavily into my fucking reggae, you know, dub reggae. And if I was listening to... You know, and we were listening to really out there stuff, you know, like music concrete and, and, and stockhausen and stuff, just as a 
It was crazy. We were really into weird shit. I don't know why. And it wasn't a put on, but it was just, it kind of fed our heads from like weird poetry, like Malame and Lautremont. And it, from a distance, you'd think, why are people getting into that weird shit? But I think, I remember there was an interview between Burroughs and Bowie in Cream magazine, right? Bowie was writing songs about Jean Genet. We found out about Lou Reed. Through Lou Reed, we got down to Burroughs. You know, you just kind of, You'd hear a name in a, in, a, in a you'd hear a name dropped in an interview. Then you'd find it in a junk shop. Then you'd look in the back of the City Lights anthology and find weirder people. And you ended up with a Polinaire, right? You know, in a right. totally unintellectual kind of way. And it blew your mind. And you thought, this is how this is what reality is. Yeah, and those are the days where you connected the dots on your own out in the world. You didn't do it exactly. behind a computer, right? Exactly. And it was a treasure hunt. It was a right. treasure hunt. It was the thrill. It was the thrill of the hunt. It still is to me for a certain extent. And I don't think you can knock, knock the internet and I don't, because, you know, somebody jumps onto something else through a Spotify playlist or somebody in Japan sends me something or I do some research. But I've got these weird ideas of juxtaposition. I'll deliberately listen to something which I don't think, which isn't inside my, my spectrum. So we've established that early on, you knew who you were, you knew who you liked to read, who you like to listen to, how you like to dress. Uh, did you ever feel, even with your group of friends, did you ever feel weird or not normal? I think, I think normal people are really weird. <laughs> I'm sorry, but, you know, anybody, could, that can, anybody that, can, that can step over people dying in the street and, like, watch things on the TV and not even talk about it, and it's like, what the fuck? You know, I was reading something that society itself is kind of, what's the word? Psychopathical or something. You know, it's like pathological or something. That, if that, that is not, it's not civilized, is it, really? But when you got to New York and you met all these people in that no-wave scene, you must have felt like these are kind of like my, my teammates. Kind of, yeah. But I don't, personally, I don't really get on with musicians. And I don't really get on with too many artists. You know, like, from my town, there's like Banksy and Massive Attack and... But they're more from like normal people kind of, you know, I remember being in Sable Robots and Keith Herring was like drawing on the wall and he drew on my friend's guitar, you know, and, and Gareth was saying on the train the other day that Basquet was hanging out with Rib Rig and Panic, you know, but whatever, in hindsight, people look back and make stories about why do they, you know, they make stories about the people that died or the, you know, if I'd have died now, this record would be multi-platinum. I mean, not now, I mean then. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. The way the way the PR machine works, but and and often you know for me it's the one of our one of my one of my friends died recently and he he was just it was it's it's the kind of it's the people that were leaning against the wall that set the tone more than the blaggers. That being said, I mean it seems to me like like I was reading that Jerry Seinfeld only feels comfortable around fellow comics. He can only hang out with comedians, but you're the opposite. Who do you hang out You're with? You're telling me to hang around with comedians. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if you don't get along with artists <laughs> and you and you and normal people freak you out, who do you hang out with? Basically, I think there's a middle ground. I, I hang out with kind of I hang out with kind of I don't, I hang out with with odd bods, you know, like like weird people that hang around outside the supermarket. I, you know, I I can't really. It's not really a type, but. I, I suddenly make a random friend in the park. Or, I mean, this sounds completely <laughs> a kind of weird predator. But, but 
old people I really like, babies, you know, but it's not, you know, obviously you, you make friends. And, and for me, the whole point of being a musician and not working in an office or a factory was the social side of it. It was just four lads sat around a ping pong table in the youth club saying, let's pick up some instruments so we can have a laugh around the world, you know. Why don't you so, get on with musicians? Well, I'm doing it now, but I really don't like people who talk about themselves. Mm. Right? And the okay. only reason I have to talk about myself in this situation is in order to spread the word about this record, why, which, apart from the fact that we made it, I think is a, is a, is a strong antidote in these restless times. I mean, Gareth was reading this book about Zen masters in hostile times or something. I think that somehow certain forms of music or certain forms of art can form temporary autonomous zones which you can kind of dream into and it and it helps like a like a superfood for the brain it, it, it helps like like what you know if i if i put if i put ghosts by albert ayler on the on the record player i'm transported into a, a beautiful world which i feel i then feel i have to roll up my arm roll up my sleeves and try and build because the potential of the future is amazing, you know. But I, you seem like a guy who's maintained friendships, even though, even though you, you, don't, you say you don't get along well with musicians, but you, you seem like you have. Yeah, I'll talk about musicians now, for example. I mean, in the last week, I've been, you know, I was chat, chatting to my friend Mally from... We were going through boxes of old artwork, finding old posters and stuff for the box set and the extra artwork in this, in this, in this album. I realized I'm still friends with Cabaret Voltaire. I bumped into Linton Crazy Johnson the other day. Charles Bullen from This Heat, if it wasn't for him coming into a studio, we would have gotten a really bad fight with the engineers because they thought we were mental. You know, we did a John Peel session and the, and the engineers back then were like the guys in those Beatle films. They wore sort of gray sort of laboratory jackets and you, you couldn't argue with them. And we wanted to turn everything down and put, put everything in the red, you know. Dennis Bavell, who produced the record, just did an amazing sort of dub mix of some of the tracks live on stage at these sort of salon events. We were just, you know, no, I, I love seeing, you know, and I pick and choose. Do you know what I mean? No, I, you know, I'm, I'm a sociable person. The creation of art is, you know, in a band, it's, it's, a, it's a democracy, right? So you're, you're having to collaborate. Well, I'd, again, I question that because in Bali, they have this saying, we have no art. We do everything well. You know, a Zen master would move a... I remember Lee, I was in the garden at Adrian Shearer's house, and Lee Perry just picked up this pebble and moved it across the garden. I sat with Sun Ra and had high tea in, like, 1980, and he was talk, telling me about this planet he was from, and he thought I was from a similar planet, I think, you know. But God knows, I'm not, I'm not one to judge, really, but I, I know that we make these crazy sounds and we try and put round bricks and square holes and sparks happen, other people run off with the sparks and start fires. And good luck to them, you know. It's a, right. it's a cyclical process, like one of those alchemical snakes. The thing is, is like whether it's Ian Curtis or Sun Ra, like you have, you've kept the company of some very interesting people. They're interesting to you. A lot of these people from my generation are just like normal lads or lassies who've just had a go, who've dared to dream. Other people like Kenneth Anger... Sun Ra, I, I searched out 
I'm a fanboy myself. When we were down in Bristol, me and Gareth were saying, look, they, that was the place we stood outside when we were 12 and got Sparks autograph or Roxy Music's autograph, you know. I'd got no idea what Dr. Feelgood thought that when they were sweating and just got off stage, there were two 12-year-old boys sitting there watching them in their underpants. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I went yeah. up and I spoke to Alan Ginsberg after a poetry readings, you know, because, and we got in an argument. We went, and I went all the way up to Jajuka in Morocco. But so what? These people are there. I don't think anybody's any better or any worse than anybody else. You know, and often I, yeah, I don't know. I can't, I can't analyze myself, mate. Did you, what kind of an argument did you get into with Ginsberg? Well, I started talking to him about some poem or something, and he started shouting at me, uh, Peter Lofsky as well, saying that I was exaggerating the apocalypse. <laughs> oh. One of the people I was talking to the other day, one of the, one of, for me, one of the best people that I've come across on my travels, there's this, there was this publishing house called Feral House, and I just met this lad when he was just starting at Adam Parfrey. He died recently, but he was astounding, astounding. And the people that keep kind of distribution systems open. I remember when Rough Trade San Francisco opened and then uh, Mark Pauline and Survival Research, you know, the whole, the whole way that the independent kind of DIY music, um, music scene kind of mutated into kind of across the board into all sorts of different areas is just, I think it's good to give, to, to give alternative in, in infrastructures and alternative matrices that give that people can grow confident in you know because you get battered down by the by the by the robots sometimes
idea of the pop group really was like a melange of a big kind of mixtape of stuff that we wanted, we would have wanted to listen to. And I, you know, and, and I, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I don't really, you know, in, in, in whatever you're calling ART, whatever you're calling, I'm do the, 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 the fateful symmetry that I struggle with, you know, it's like a haiku. I can struggle, struggle with moving around a word or how much distortion is on the end of a line for like two years until it's right for me, until it feels like I'm communicating what, what I'm communicating, even if it's chaos. Yeah, and that's why I've always loved your band, and I always loved The Fall, because it just felt to me like it was it was so specifically serving an aesthetic that didn't really care about what was happening outside. And that's and, why but, I like those outsider artist people that just live out in the countryside and make things out of tin cans or something that nobody even knows they've made. That. Yeah, right. thank you. Right. So like like a friend of mine was making she was doing some clay. Um, I don't know. She was making these kind of birds and someone said to her, oh, you should market these. And she was like, I don't give a shit about I just want to make these. I, I didn't really think about commerce, you know, and to yeah. me, that's what it's all about. And so when I listen to the pop group and I listen to the reissue of this album, it still sounds fresh and vital and new. Uh, even though I've, you know, I've heard yeah. it so much, it still sounds new. And I think it's because you are adhering to your own kind of inner code that it doesn't, as a result, it doesn't ever be get dated. I'm constantly questioning whatever you call this inner code. I'm doing this, I'm, I'm really, I was writing this thing called Cryptonomicon, like, you know, a crypto version of the Necronomicon and about how, like, codes and kind of you know a digital dictatorship is moving in to the to the air you know and it's like but i'm constantly flipping and changing channels inside my sense myself saying yes no yes no yes no you know so if you asked me a question five minutes ago i might have changed and gone against it and that i feel is keeping is is keeping the door open you know letting the sunlight in because I've got this I've got this saying that faith is a room for doubt and I think if you get set in your ways even as being a freak you're fucked I'm kind of surrounded especially having kind of political debates with people at the moment that people are arguing an argument that was on that was built on sand in the first place that was a a lie in a hall of mirrors of lies and it's, it's too late for that argument. We've basically, we've got to like just throw a curveball into the future and just look to the, build the future and, and, and be open instead of arguing over something that happened last year. Particularly what I would call conscious people should really not fear technologies. And, you know, there's this, there's, a, there's, there's, there's some theoretical stuff like Marcuse and stuff in the 50s and Adorno and stuff that cannot really be applied to these times. I mean, there's a good new American economist who wrote The Price of Inequality, Joseph Steiglitz, but it's just like, we have to be open-minded. And the, the people I really get on with in the airports, I remember being in some pub in Switzerland and these guys who were working on the, finding the smallest piece of matter ever are just like crazed scientists <laughs> or people are dreaming the future. Do you know what I mean? The right. rest, I'm kind of thinking... Oh my God! Are they? Are they? They're 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 fighting a fight which which is which is like matter and antimatter. They're actually keeping the thing they hate in place by opposing it. 
I mean, it's a weird theory to throw into the thing, but I've got a feeling that sometimes with you're feeding the, 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 you're feeding the monster. Okay, so keeping that in mind, do you think the past is instructive? Well, I've got this. For me, time is a circle. You're going to put the phone down in a minute. It's like, and my dad had this idea, it comes from quantum physics, that everything that ever happened is happening right next to us in like five or six dimensions or something, right? And I had an argument with this psychic. I, went, I go to these sort of psychic, you know, in these little huts in the countryside. I was saying to this woman, how do you know that these people you're talking to are dead? Why are you obsessed with the dead? Why can it not be people bringing messages from the future? Do you know what I mean? Ah. Uh-huh. So it's how you... It's, you know, maybe what's written on the tin isn't right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And this just questioning and keeping open to things, because the worst thing, I think, is, you know, whatever age you get to, looking back on your life and thinking, oh, for fuck's sake, I've been totally conned and gone down the wrong cul-de-sac, and all my energies have been dis- dissipated into a distraction. Yeah, I've, I have felt that way. Um especially in, in relationships with people, I've, I've felt misled. Right. Um, but I also think I was probably misleading myself. Yes. I think I'm not questioning. I'm doing – when I'm talking, I'm, I'm talking about myself. I just know, you know, some of, some of my friends, I just think, made a decision of who they were when they were 12 or 13 or 14, and it's a, it's a millionth of who they could be. Do you know what I mean? That Wilhelm Reich had this idea that every child when it's born has the potential of Jesus Christ, but it's kind of whittled out from them at school and college and at work, you know. Anyway, but so, the, uh, for me, the idea of potential, potentialities, you know, the, the pop group and, and, and everything I do, for me, is like an index of possibilities. I don't know if these things are right. I don't know if they're wrong, but they get me excited at that moment, so I'll throw them in the mix. Okay, so it's not as though you it's know. not it's not a refinement of an aesthetic at all. It's it's almost like no. a um, like a, a shifting of gears. It's tra- I call it trash aesthetics. I call it about finding that yeah, trash aesthetics. Or I, I was I was on the bus somewhere the other day, and it said about people um, people inventing themselves. Right, and I just kind of you know we were. You know, we were inventing ourselves. We we chose to invent ourselves, if, if, you, if you understand what, what I mean. And sometimes it's difficult in life. And sometimes you think, oh, if I back down now and, and lick that ass, I'll get a bit further in whatever status symbols people, you know, whatever totem people are worshipping at the time. But I can't fucking do it. <laughs> and I look up to people like the guy from Chrome, you know. You know, the people have... People have fought this fight since prehistoric times. There was some saying I heard the other day. They say some people, some people hear voices and, and, and are called mad. Other people hear voices and are called saints. In the invention of what you were doing when you guys were trying to invent yourselves, what, what's amazing to me is that there's – like I was saying, there's nothing tentative about it. There's, it you don't sound – like your footing is uncertain, and, and that's what I love. I love the confidence. No, whichever – that's that, – but that – that, that comes from punk. That comes from punk, and that comes from the kind of hooligan culture that I grew up with, grew up in, right? And I was, again, I was saying to Gareth and, and the other day, it comes from being in a youth club and going face-to-face with, like, a gang of five skinheads who want to beat you up. 
and then you take that face and you take it on stage when people are spitting at you, then you take it in the studio, you take it in the record company, and then you take it to the church. <laughs> and your wife doesn't want to look at you. So you grow a beard. <laughs> what do you do? Stand on your head and do tantric yoga. I mean, mate, I need a drink. <laughs> this is like I'll primal therapy in front of the listening public. I am now <laughs> naked with half a beard. <laughs> You're such a towering figure. I can't see people trying to mess with you. Well, you you you, you will be shocked. Well, the, the trouble is, this was when I was young before I got in a band. You know, 12, 13, 14, all the 18-year-olds thought I was their age. And they just say, if you fight him, we'll let you off kind of thing. They wanted me in their gangs for some reason. I was like walking around with makeup saying, oh, I'm into Bowie, man. <laughs> get punched in the face, you know. <laughs> hey, man, <laughs> I'm into Mick Ronson and Joe Bryas. <laughs> um, how much invention is still going on? Like, do you, do you still feel like you are inventing? Oh, mate, if you could see my, I'm still, I'm still making my own clothes. I've just been adapting a pair of oversized Y fronts. Mate, honestly, I'm I'm <laughs> getting into crafting, especially near Christmas. Yeah, it's the time of year for it. That's for sure. Um, in terms of your own, <laughs> I just collect junk, and I like like putting on top of something. Is <laughs> fucking. I drive people mental, honestly, because things like a weird piece of tin can can have immense value to me. I think it's a portal into another universe. I mean, I sound a bit like Rocky Erickson here, but you know, <laughs> it's like somebody. It's like the beginning of 2001 when those apes picked up a tool. I'm suddenly in the park with the dog, and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Having a flashback to, to the Vietnam I never went to. Yeah, or the beginning of 2001. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned something about your father, which I meant to ask you about. About He was something about the informational fields. What, what are you talking about? What is that? Yeah. Well, basically, um, he... I'm not going to use the word occultist, but he was obsessed. There was a thing in England in the 1950s. He was, there was a thing called the BUFO, the British UFO Society. And him and this guy called George Adamski thought these UFOs were going to land on this hill outside Bristol where they make cheddar cheese, right? But apart from that, we'd, you know, every weekend, at every family holiday, we'd go dowsing these ley lines and like weird barrows. He was con he was convinced there was like this pyramid near where Peter Gabriel lives. That it was like an Egyptian. So it's all that kind of Robert Boval, Graham Hancock, footprints of the gods, you know. I remember meeting Arthur C. Clarke with him when, anyway, you know, a real character, not really a sort of family man because he was always doing his weird projects, but a lovely, you know, an incredible mind, a shining mind. And he had this thing called the Wessex Research Group. And a, Recently, at his funeral, um, some of his, you know, they're kind of really nerdy people. They're kind of people eat vinegar sandwiches with, like, duffel coats, you know. Anyway, <laughs> it was, um, some lady got up and said that he doused the, the, the gravity of Mars. And he told one of his, he told somebody in NASA the precise gravity of Mars. And four years later, or whatever it was, when they landed on Mars, he was in within a millionth of the, this is, you know, I shouldn't really say about it because I haven't done the research to back it up, but he had an idea that you could, with, a, with, with some kind of dowsing instrument, you could ask the information field, which, which is this field all around us, questions. He went to Shark Cathedral and somehow, and he taught this thing called remote viewing. Anyway, I didn't actually see a lot of him because he was just running off with his mad ideas, you know, he just, but... 
was he... I find, you know, there's at the moment there, well, there's a really cool kind of cutting-edge scientist in England called Rupert Sheldrake who talks about these, a similar kind of field. He, he believes there's a field around the body that helps us heal, and he thinks that animals grow into a shape that's already there. A form. It's kind of strange stuff, but it's the only way to explain. It's like matter and anti. It's the only way to explain some of these things, and and probably in you know, forty years time, it will be disproved, and another theory will come along. But at least they're pushing the boundaries of accepted thought, which I wish would happen more in music. Because I'm constantly trying to play around with three D sound and like sound things they use at IMAX and stuff, you know, and. And work in, you know, mastering and stuff. I'm co constantly trying to like whatever poten whatever potential box we've got to play in. I want to challenge the, you know, I want to bounce off it like a rubber room, you know. Uh, by the way, the extra material on this collection is a real treat. Thank you, sir. Yeah, it really is. It was a lot um, of work. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Was that uh, a labor? The th the thing is that being. It was a total cooperative, as you're saying. It was, a, it was, it was, you know, it was a punk band, and we were all equal members, right? So all the money is shared equally, and we had to kind of buy these tapes back from from a from a big label, you know, because we wanted to get control. Now we've got control of all our back material, and I kind of made a vow when I was young and my solo stuff was taking off that I'd kind of protect the legacy of the pop group, you know, because I think it's something, I just didn't, didn't want it to end up on some shitty little, little reissue label and, this, you know, I, I kind of care about it, even if, you know, even if it's not a huge money spinner, do you know what I mean? And me and Gareth spent fucking weeks going through old cassettes. I went to my mum's and went through the attic and went through all this old artwork. So, and I just think that if somebody is going to, you know, I don't particularly, for me, the, the album is what we wanted to say. But in you know in the general climate and Mute are the best label around at the moment. They you know they said in a very nice way that have you got what else is there? And I'm like, well, that's what we wanted to say. The albums and the two videos. That's that's what we were saying at the time. But then when we bought these the master tapes back from um, from the from the from the from the old record label, we suddenly discovered that in the 24 tracks and in the boxes there were these raw takes of the tracks of how we were playing them as soon as we got in the studio before us and Dennis like did multiple edits and music concrete and turned everything backwards. So all I know is a record collector myself, when somebody found those Velvet Underground acetates, you know, there was in, in some garage sale, you get to see a, you get to see a snapshot of, of, of something which, and personally, I think Alien Blood is, is more the pop group than, than, than why to a certain extent. And, People ask, you know, and it's 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 mind blowing for us. It's absolutely mind blowing. You know, and we collected all these tapes, and so, you know, I put more effort into this reissue than I did the original fucking album. Sorry to swear <laughs> on American radio, but I, yeah, like but like you're saying, even with the mastering, I mean, you know, one of my friends, one of the best masters in England, just remastered this track, and we did this new thing of half cut half-speed cutting at Abbey Road, Abbey Road. We, did, we really went into the, the depths of it all, you know, and tried to get as much potential as we could. Look, it's, it's a brilliant record, but I love the extra stuff. I mean, as a music fan and as a fan of Thank your band. You. And it holds uh, together, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I just didn't want to put in loads of like, it holds together. We sequenced the Alien Blood exactly as Y, so it's like a raw early version of Y. The Y Live is sequenced like Y with the best recordings from any concerts we found in that period. 
And now we're getting ready to take Y Live out as a kind of symbolist theater, kind of opera to sound all like Falco and, do you know what I mean? Obviously yeah. on ice. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's because we never played those songs. You know, as soon as we came out of the studio, we were writing other songs that we were like jamming and we never played all those songs in one piece. And some of the songs on Y we never even played live. And, and the original bass player wants to play with us again. The draw, you know, we're going we're gonna to play this piece maybe with some, with, we're working out what to do with maybe one of my weird experimental anti-gravity dance mates or something. We're just working out how to make a kind of sensory, sensory, not sensory deprivation, but, you know, like some kind of Rosrack test, you know, and how to do something as we are, you know, the age we are now, but something as interesting as what we did then. Obviously, it'll be slightly different, and we're throwing in loads of things now, but we're, we're totally kind of... I've really been pulled into this thing. I wish that phone call hadn't have happened. I was living in Berlin. I was doing really fine, hanging out with all the cutting-edge kind of fashion <laughs> kids and making this pretty out-there music. I get a phone call saying, Matt Groening from The Simpsons wants you to reform the pop group and Iggy to reform the Stooges. I thought, again, like you, I thought somebody was pranking me. But it was for this festival, ATP. And I said, no, it sounds like necrophilia. Put the phone down, right? Then I, a few minutes later, I thought, oh, my God, this is my mate. He's managing Throbbing Gristle. He's a really cool bloke. Should I do one of my manifesto things and, and go against what I think is right? You know? And so the next morning, I just, you know, I, I, I just said yes when I was trying to say no. And it's just, you know, it, and... As soon as we got in the room, it, like, it was like a bee's, a hornet's nest just, just escaped out of everybody's trousers, you know. Hey. <laughs> it's, it's, I didn't think it was, I, I never thought this was going to happen, especially the playing together and stuff, you know. But it's, it's interesting, and I'm still doing my other stuff, I'm still working with, you know. It's, it's, it's an interesting bow to have in your arrow. And I think that people, you know, that post-punk period just won't go away. I hope that you bring it stateside. I don't know if you will. Definitely. No, it's everything is it's already in plan. Well, all right, Mark. I think we've uh, I think we've done it. I think we've covered all the big stuff. Did, did you guys talk to the guy from Oscar Do? Yeah, that was me. Yeah, I talked to Greg. Yeah. Because I've just done a version of a Grant Hart record. Grant Hart's wife is getting together because he died of cancer or something. A lot of people, you know, Weasel Water. A lot of people are the guy from Chrome. A lot of people are doing covers of of Grant Hart songs for a big American cha um, cancer thing, which will come out next year sometime. In the last, in the, you know, it's, I don't know what it is, and I don't know whether it's to do with why, and I don't know whether it's to do with the pop group, or I don't know whether it's to do with the stars aligning. But in the last two weeks, I've been doing something, and then the name of the person would turn up a split second later, and it started happening to my girlfriend. Oh, I just read that, and somebody just said it. You know, it's just like, I mean, I ignore those sort of things, but it's just like, when, I, when somebody said you talked to Grant Hart, and I mean, not Grant, to the guy from Hoskins, she couldn't pronounce it, she went, who's could do? Which made my day. Anybody talking in weird children languages is welcome <laughs> in my house. Don't say that on the radio because there'd be cues. Well, what song are you doing? Uh, All of My Senses. Oh, it's a great song. That's from the uh, 254, no, is that the 2541 EP or is that the... Uh... I'm trying to remember when that came out. Maybe that was the set, the first I'm solo I'm not sure, record. but my Watts is playing bass on it, and my friend K.K. Noll, the most extreme noise guy in Japan, is, is on it as well. We're, we're getting a good... It's cool. Cool people have been involved. It's one of those... It's a guy from one of those classic old, like, WFMU or something, you know, those classic... 
out there radio stations that only Americans have these days. I'm really impressed with the American underground. You know, there's, there's really cool stuff happening in every city out there at the moment, which it's better than what's going on in England, not being rude. You said that Mike, uh, Mike Watt is playing bass on the track? Mike's playing on my track, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I love the um, guy. Him and, him and Ian Mackay are like, like, I think they're like, I feel, I feel like they're like my brothers, you know. Yeah. Well, they've done, you know, what Fugazi did for the, for, the, for the underground across Europe and America. And, you know, they, I, I, ultimate respect to both of them. And Mike has turned into a really good friend, you know. He, it, t it turned out he played on the same bill, you know, because him, him and the guy from Dinosaur Jr. got Iggy to reform the Stooges. And he played bass with the Stooges, you know. Right. Mike Watt just played my friend's living room in New York. Wicked. There's hope for me yet. Oh, there's hope. Oh, you'll listen. You'll be in a lot of American living rooms, Mark Stewart. <laughs> oh, thanks. I needed that. <laughs> Thank you, Captain. Well, that's Mark Stewart. <laughs> that's a good. Uh, I think a good sampling. Of, uh, of who he is. He is truly an extraordinary guy. So bright, so funny, so fast. Uh, a great chat. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, listen, go over to thepopgroup.net and buy some pop group stuff. You want the deluxe reissue of the Y album? Well, that's there. You want some vinyl? That's there. You want a cassette? That's there. How about some t-shirts? Yep, you can find pop group t-shirts there. And guess what else you can find? Tea towels. That's right. There are pop group tea towels. That's right. For all your versatile kitchen needs, you can now have a pop group tea towel. How cool would that be? Wouldn't that look great in your kitchen? All right. Popgroup.net. Go over there. Buy some stuff. Uh, go to alexgreenonline.com and find out what's going on with me. Some very exciting things happening in 2020, so make sure you visit the site to find out what's going on there. But don't worry. I'll be talking about it relentlessly. Now, if you want to subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast, we are available on all podcast platforms, Spotify, Last.fm, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Music, and now iHeartRadio. Subscribe for free, leave a rating, tell all your friends, we would appreciate it. If you want to follow me on Twitter, please do so at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast or just email me editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Let's close the show with another song from the deluxe reissue of the Y album. This is Trap by the Pop Group. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Trap! Snap my skin! Trap! Shit's got the same catch! Rip my love! Catch! Now the sound falls in! Snap my skin! Shit's got the same Tell them from the love! Now the sound falls in! Snap my skin, scissors cut the seam. Tell them from the world how the shit is. Trap. Snap my
Death will release you, Kate. 